Welcome to the R Word. We're here to talk about reparations in the church in Northwest Arkansas. I'm joined by my friend and co-host Dustin McGowan. What's up? To discuss an interview I recorded with Dr. Michael Rhodes back in 2021. Now let's listen to the interview. Today we have a special guest with us, my friend, Dr. Michael Rhodes. Hey. Michael is an Old Testament lecturer at Cary Baptist College in Auckland, New Zealand, and author of books and articles, including Practicing the King's Economy and The Case for Jubilee Reparations. He's an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. So thank you for being with us today, Michael. Yeah, really happy to be here, Will. Yeah. Um, so, Michael, when we talked about Reparations Now, NWA in the fall, I asked you to write uh, an endorsement for us, which you graciously did. So I wanted to read that briefly and then ask you to expand on it. I'm going to ask you a few questions. Uh, but you wrote, Scripture calls God's people to be jubilee people. And as we argued in practicing the king's economy, Jubilee people radically and sacrificially seek a world in which everyone has a social and economic stake in the community. Tragically, though, there's a long history of the white church in America choosing instead an anti-Jubilee way of life, especially in relation to our black and brown brothers and sisters. Through Northwest Arkansas's partnership with The Witness and Reparations Now, God's people have the opportunity to declare Jubilee repenting and repairing the sins and failures of our ancestors by investing in the next generation of black Christian leaders. I strongly commend this work. So today, Michael, I just wanted to have a short conversation asking you to expand on that endorsement. So I've got three questions for you. The first uh, is how has the white church in America chosen an anti-Jubilee way of life? Yeah, thanks, Lowell, and um, thanks for giving me the opportunity again to talk with you about this stuff. I'm, I'm encouraged by what you guys are working on. Um, you know, this is a huge question, and I'm not a historian, and so I don't have all the answers, but um, I've spent the last uh, almost, I'm working on 11 years living in a majority African-American community here in Memphis, um, uh, which I got into as part of a community development initiative that I worked for called Advanced Memphis for five years. And um, I'm a Memphian. And so as part of being a Christian in Memphis who came back home to Memphis and to this community um, that is one of the more economically impoverished neighborhoods in our city, I've, I've grown increasingly aware of some of this history. And so um, obviously that anti-Jubilee way of life goes back to slavery, uh, at least. And, you know, the white uh, church was deeply complicit in slavery. White pastors wrote the vast majority of all written defenses of slavery. So um, church leaders, church educated pastors were some of the most vocal supporters of slavery. Um, and of course, that anti-Jubilee theft did not end with slavery. Um, uh, the failure to make good on the promise of 40 acres and a mule in the immediate aftermath of slavery that would have allowed uh, Black Americans, Black former slaves to have that socioeconomic stake that I think is really at the heart of a lot of the Bible's vision. That was promised but denied. Um, 
And then that denial, that anti-Jubilee way of life continued. And it's important to recognize that that anti-Jubilee way of life um, was both formal uh, and informal. So, of course, throughout the South, um, in the Jim Crow era, the terror of lynching and just horrendous violence, terrorist violence against Black people um, was a real feature and was a real feature that the church turned a blind eye to. In my own neighborhood, um, I'm about a mile from the People's Grocery, which was a late 1800s era Black-owned cooperative grocery store. Um, and the three men who, who ran that thing, uh, it was successful enough that it was threatened to a white grocery store right here in my neighborhood. And that led to an armed confrontation and the three Black owners of the People's Grocery Store were arrested and then they were taken out of the prison and lynched, all three of them. And that, that all happened very close to my home here. And it was actually, uh, one of those men was Ida B. Wells' friend. And so that lynching actually catapulted her anti-lynching crusade. So um, right here in my neighborhood, I've had to think about the terrorism that really did dominate. So that was obviously an anti-jubilary, anti-jubilee thing that the church was often complicit in. Um, but it also happened like formally and legally. So, so black people were systematically screened out of all of the major wealth building initiatives of the 20th century. So whereas my white grandparent veterans came back from the war and had access to money to go to college and start businesses and all this stuff for the GI Bill, black Americans were almost exclusively or exhaustively screened out of those programs. Whereas, um, my white family members had opportunities to, to build wealth through home ownership with FHA backed loans because of redlining, um, which worked through the bank uh, and through uh, legislation, black people were denied access to build wealth through their homes. So like, just like right there with the home ownership thing, if, if you look at, um, you know, white average white household wealth, which is like somewhere between 10 and 14 times average black household wealth. A lot of that is tied up in homes. And the reason why, a direct reason why white people have so much more wealth in their homes is because the government made it really easy to buy homes and redlining made it really hard for black families to buy homes and exposed them to like all sorts of predatory housing behavior. Um, I used to think, by the way, that redlining was like a metaphor. It's not. In Memphis, they've turned up the maps. So I've seen the maps that include my neighborhood with red lines around them where banks would not make loans there because there were you know, too many black people there. And the church was involved in all of this all along the way. You know? And so um, uh, when uh, someone like um, James Foreman shows up with the Black Manifesto and saying to churches, you need to pay reparations, uh, the reason why many black Christians at the time said, yeah, that's right, was because, as one group put it, the white church has been the moral cement of white supremacy in this country in the past and in the present. So, so the claim um, that uh, white Americans have embraced this kind of anti-Jubilee way of life towards black people and that Christians and churches have by and large been very complicit in that, I don't think it's debatable. It's a history that is hard and difficult and unknown, but but it, the facts are there. And, you know, for me personally, I mean, I come from a church background where our church had an explicit policy of segregation into the 1950s, right? And so um, this is a part of my 
church Christian story. And it's, it's one that I've had to grapple with uh, very personally. Um, so, so, so I think w- the Christians have to come to grips with the fact that we have this vision of a Jubilee way of life and every vine and fig tree economy where every family has a socioeconomic place to stand and portion to steward. And yet we, we've often done, worked for and settled for the exact opposite um, in relation to our, our black brothers and sisters. Thank you for sharing that, Michael. I know you speak to that um, at some length in practicing the king's economy, uh, the sins of our fathers, I think is the section of the chapter. I don't recall the chapter name, but um, yeah, thank you for, for sharing that with us more briefly yeah, now. The, the other side of that story, of course, is, is um, Native Americans. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, we talk a little bit about that as well. I've been really challenged um, by some um, uh, Native American evangelical brothers like uh, Richard Twist and Mark Charles, who really forced me to reckon with that as well, which is an even newer story for me in some ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a tragedy that Christians um, not only haven't stood up for this kind of Jubilee vision, but we've actually embraced and enacted its opposite far too often. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Mark Charles. I read his, um, he, he and Sun Chen Ra, um, uh, you probably remember the name of that book, um, uh, The Doctrine of Discovery, The Doctrine of Discovery, and uh, blew my mind. Um, really good, really hard stuff. Hmm. Um, so the second question, Michael, where do we see Jubilee in the Bible? Um, you're an Old Testament scholar. Um, and professor, and, and how might the Jubilee speak to the contemporary debate about reparations? Yeah, so you might have to rein me in here, Lowell, because not only am I an Old Testament Bible person who's written on the Jubilee, I actually named our fourth child. My wife and I named our fourth child, my daughter, Jubilee. So this is something I could go on and on and on about. Um, hey, I'm just going to go on mute and you just talk as long as you want, okay? <laughs> So I think you, uh, in your community, you guys have, have engaged, I know you have, Lowell, um, engaged in, a, uh, engaged with um, um, Greg Thompson and Duke Kwan's new book on reparations, which I actually I have on my shelf. I haven't read it yet, but Duke and Greg are actually the guys who got me thinking about reparations first, and uh, partially because um, uh, Pastor Kwan was reading our book and and asked me when I was engaging with him about it, why we didn't talk about reparations. And he was the one who told me about this black manifesto, this, you know, demand for reparations um, from the church. And so I thought, well, I wonder if um, I I had thought of reparations exclusively as a public policy question previously to that. And in practicing the King's economy, we explicitly don't treat public policy questions. So it just never crossed my mind that those two things would intersect. But Duke said, well, have you heard about, um, you know, the Black Manifesto and this, this demand for reparations from the church. And so I, I went to the Jubilee with this question, does the way the Jubilee works speak to this contemporary question about reparations? And on the one hand, the first thing I want to say is, I think that Leviticus 25 in its context and with 26 does really speak to some of the primary um, claims involved in the case for reparations. Uh, first of all, it gives this vision, as we've been talking about, of, of this every vine and fig tree, you know, um, everyone having a place to stand and a portion to steward, that overall vision, right, um, which is at the heart of the Bible, 
is also at the heart of, I think, a heart of the case for reparations. You know, this idea that that the black community has been disenfranchised and for their own well-being and for their fl the flourishing of the black community, what's needed is, 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 is economic wealth and power that will allow thriving and flourishing to happen. I think Leviticus 25 has that every vine and fig tree vision. So you've got that positive vision. But secondly, Leviticus 25 also addresses the question, how do we think about economic injustice over the course of generations, right? So, um, uh, you know, as, as um, your friend and my friend Greg Thompson pointed out to me one time, nobody disagrees that if I take something from you, Lowell, that you ought to give it back. And as I've said, I think it's uncontroversial to say that my ancestors, at least, uh, took stuff from um, Black descendants of slaves ancestors. So we all agree that back then, right, uh, that was wrong. And if that had been called out, the people who took something should have returned it. Everyone sort of agrees with that. And, it, and in the arguments about reparations, people have have often said, yeah, that should have happened, right? But the question is, and this comes up, you know, when Congress debates these things, you know, someone like Mitch McConnell said something to the effect of, you know, I don't think a program where people um, are, are repaying, people who did not take the land are repaying that debt to the descendants of people, right? That, it's that multi-generational aspect that throws people off and that makes people go like, is this really right, you know? And so what I think we find in the year of Jubilee is an example of that dynamic at work, because the way the Jubilee works is it says you may lose your land. Anybody might lose their land for any reason. Right. And the way you lose your land, it could be natural disaster. It could be ineptitude. You know, I'm a bad farmer, so I stink at farming. So I run out of I don't have any seed to plant this year. So I might sell a portion of my land to you, Lowell. Right. So that I can have seed to plant the rest of my land. Right. That could happen. And what the Jubilee says is no matter how I lose my land under any circumstance, if Lowell's family acquires my family land at the end of 50 years, you've got to give it back, right? It doesn't matter how I lost it. However, the text makes clear that one way you might lose your land is through oppression. That's why it says three times in Leviticus 25, do not oppress your neighbor in any of these ways. So Leviticus 25 is aware that one of the ways that land changes hands is through injustice and oppression. And what's interesting is and it's easy to miss this because 50 years doesn't sound like that long to us, but the average life expectancy for a male in Israel, we think would be something around the neighborhood of 40 years, right? And the people who make land decisions are the heads of the household. So they're not going to start making decisions about the household land until they're at least in their 20s or 30s. So it would be very common that if I cheated you, Lowell, out of your land, both of us might well be dead by the time the year of Jubilee rolls around, right? And in that situation, what the Jubilee requires is that your descendants pursue justice by restoring land that was taken from my family to my descendants. So you have an example in scripture where justice requires a return of the land, a return of something that was taken, a, a repair that's occurring between the descendants, at least on some occasions, of both the perpetrators and the victims, right? And, and in fact, 
that is not just like a practical thing, it's theological, because in Leviticus 26, the very next chapter where we first learn about the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25, God says, you know, if you, if you break all these laws and you suffer the consequences for disobedience, you're going to go into exile. But in exile, if you repent for your sins and the sins of your fathers, then I will restore you, right? And so this idea, which is so unusual to us, theologically and practically, that, that, that God might call us to repent of our sins and the sins of our forefathers, shows up not only in Leviticus 26, but it shows up in lots of places. In Daniel 9, Daniel prays, Father, forgive us for our sins and the sins of our forefathers. In Nehemiah, you have the people repenting for their sins and the sins of their forefathers. So this idea theologically that we are so connected to our community, to the people of God, that we can get caught up in their sin and need to repent of their, their sin, need to proactively turn from their sin and our sin, shows up over and over and over again in the Old Testament. But in Leviticus 25, that repentance isn't just an expression of repentance. It isn't just a turning away from the pattern of behavior left by our parents. It actually involves repairing some of the damage done through exchanges between the descendants of both the perpetrator and the victim. So I think if you're looking for a biblical example of repair, economic repair, uh, at the communal level and at a later generational level, Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee, is the best place to go. And, you know, lots of people want to hear about the year of Jubilee. They'll say, okay, hey, yeah, but it never happened, right? Well, first of all, that's very questionable. We also don't have any record that the Day of Atonement happened, but most of us think that's pretty important. And second of all, whether God's people do what they're supposed to do is not really all that relevant to ethics. They never really got the whole uh, don't commit adultery with your wife, right? Thing either. But you and I both know that's really important, right? So some of this, it never really happened is, is kind of silly. But the more important thing is to pay attention to the way the Jubilee doesn't live just back there in Leviticus 25. It gets picked up and it inspires the people of God again and again. So it inspires uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah's eschatological imaginations. You know, one day God will declare the big Jubilee where we're restored from our but it's also social and practical, right? And so, so we see Jesus picking up the year of Jubilee in, through his quote of Isaiah 61 and declaring the year of the Lord's favor. And he says, hey, today, this year of Jubilee is being fulfilled in your hearing. And he's there in Luke 4 quoting Isaiah 61. And is that spiritual? Well, you dadgum better believe it's spiritual, but it's also more than that because then we see Jesus going on and doing Jubilee things, right? Um, caring for people's bodies and minds and all this. And, and then in Acts 2 and 4, when the people of God are sharing possessions in the early church, um, they actually, Luke actually quotes Deuteronomy 15, another jubilary debt forgiveness passage to say, and there were no needy persons among them. So that's, I'm moving really quick there, but my point is simply to say this jubilee vision creatively inspires God's people across redemptive history in both the Old and New Testaments. So it's not a stretch to say that maybe God gives the American church this jubilee vision to say, hey, how would this inspire you to think about this uh, claim against you about reparations? And I think it would, it would inspire us to say, well, look, God seems to think that at least on some occasions, we have the privilege 
of repenting and repairing our ancestors' mistakes by restoring some of what was taken, right? So it's right in there. But another thing that I think that, that the year of Jubilee does for us, and I think this cannot be missed, right? There's almost nothing like more that people like less than the idea of inherited responsibility. People hate that. And people hate the idea of, uh, all people hate the idea of any of taxes and, and, and all this sort of stuff, right? And so the idea of like, hey, this is going to cost you to repair these transgressions that, that you weren't the original agent of those transgressions, right? Like I am caught up in racism. I am caught up in white supremacy, no doubt, right? But I did not enslave people. I have not been the one who proactively took land from me. So this feels painful. People don't like it. We don't, this is uncomfortable. Nobody is jazzed about this for, within the white community, right? And this is another gift that I think that the, that the year of Jubilee gives to us because the year of Jubilee in his context is all about joy and the good life for everyone, right? So when does the year of Jubilee happen? It happens on the day of atonement when you announce that God has forgiven you all of your debts and sins. And therefore you forgive all of your debts, right? And you experience forgiveness of sin and forgiveness of debts by being restored to your own land. This is a good community, right? Second, this year of Jubilee is a community in which everyone's security is bound up in their ability to depend on everyone else. So, so the Jubilee year doesn't say, hey, you wealthy person, you need to give land. It says any of you, any of you, if at any point in your history run into hardship, you can depend on one another. So why do we cling today so much on our possessions? Why do we cling to our rights? Why do we cling to our power and our economic? It's because we're afraid of being left alone. But the Jubilee says you're not alone. Everything belongs to God. You belong to God. You're his tenants. The land belongs to God. It's his. And because of that, you can trust that God will provide for you through his people. So Jubilee says, hey, it's good news that we can take our hands off the wheel, that we can release our resources in a variety of ways because God will take care of us through this community that takes care of one another. What, what, kind, of, what kind of thing is this Jubilee thing? It's, 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 it's an opportunity for joy. How do we know this? Because God declares it, you declare the Jubilee, in the middle of a two-year vacation where you're not allowed to work. God knows the Jubilee is going to be a hard sell. So he says you can't work the year before and you can't work the year of. And for those two years, you feast off the abundance of the land itself along with the orphan and the immigrant and the debt servant and the poor and the wild animals who are all feasting with you because my gifts are so great. And what I want for you is joy. So I think when we think about, you know, reparations or whatever, at least if we're thinking about them in a Jubilee way, we should understand that God is inviting us into a way of life that's shot through with joy, right? A way of life that's shot through with connection and, and belonging and togetherness that we long for and often don't experience, right? A life that's, that's shot through with an end to kind of the relentless, this is the good life. This is a jubilant way of life. And the door in is love of God and love of neighbor in costly ways, including perhaps 
forgiving debts that people owe us, but also including repairing the injustices that our family may have, have gotten caught up in. And so I think, um, you know, when James Foreman uh, came with the Black Manifesto, he addressed the church simply as an institution that was guilty, right? And in the face of that claim, I think we have just have to say guilty as charged for the most part. But what James Foreman didn't know, but that Leviticus does, is that the church is also a community that is holy to the Lord, that is called to be holy as God is holy. And that means that whatever God is calling us into is good news for us and for the world. And so if we're thinking reparations, if we're thinking justice, if we're thinking generosity, if we're thinking economics in a jubilee key, that's not some like dour. Blah, 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 blah. This is like the way of life and joy that God has invited us to. And we've messed it up. So it's, there might be some pain as we pursue it. But let's be clear that what we're being invited into is, is the good news of the kingdom of God expressed and experienced economically. So I know I said a lot there. I could say a lot more there. Um, as you mentioned, I actually have not uh, published on this, but I am working uh, on a couple chapters in a book that I'm working on, on, on justice and, and discipleship and scripture. And this has really, um, this, that, that's allowed me to do some research on the case for reparations and the year of Jubilee. And it has been so inspiring to me. And it has made me want to figure out more and more what it looks like to participate in a Jubilee way of life um, in, in every area, but not least this, this question of, of reparations and the church's role in that. So thanks for letting me ramble on about that. And I, I'm happy to answer further questions about the year of Jubilee, if you've got them, uh, because there's so much more to say. <laughs> I love it, brother. You, you could, you could preach for a long time and I'm missing. Uh, and you need to, you need to hurry up and write that book so I can read it. Uh, man, Michael, I think, well, well, one, I mean, we've talked about practicing the King's economy, which you co-wrote. And so I think people need to read that. And then uh, your podcast uh, with Chalmers, Potlucking with Jesus, I think is some really good stuff too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, you'll have to let us know when you write that book. Man, I think for me, having read Reparations by Quan and Thompson, they make their case uh, in, in biblically primarily from Luke. Yeah. Um, Luke 10 and Luke 19, um, the Good Samaritan and, and Zacchaeus. And so it's so good to hear you expand um, on, on that biblical case yeah. for reparations, primarily, but not exclusively from Leviticus 25 and 26. And I think, yep. um, you know, uh, Unsettling Truths is the name of the, the yes. book that Charles and, and Ra wrote. And as I hear you talk about the joy uh, in Jubilee um, and connecting that with uh, the truth that sets us free, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus said that you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Well, that truth, I mean, it, it has unsettled me mm-hmm. um, and it has um, made me feel bad. Um, and I think to your point, like as a white person, like that's correct. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a part uh, of, I, I should feel guilty. Um, but there's a, a grief that doesn't that doesn't end in grief, like it leads to life, you know, because right. to your point, man, confession and repentance are gifts from God and, and pathways into life. And so I think, man, I agree with you that as I've taken, you know, my family and I baby steps towards reparations, towards a jubilee way of life, um, it's a harder and better way to live. Yeah. Um, and it's more consistent with with the truth. And, and there's freedom in that. Yeah. Um, 
so I, you know, Michael, we could talk forever. Um, I, I think, you know, I told you that I wanted to hear from you um, how your case for reparations has, has been received. I think a question that's been on my mind, um, you know, based on my experiences, to, to your point, I think that the, the evidence for reparations is difficult to dispute. Um, you, you said that these, these truths are not debatable, but they're not well known. Yeah. And so I think that as a white person and as a white Christian, there's a sense in which um, it's difficult to say um, this theory is incorrect, but it's very easy to say this is very uncomfortable for me as a white person. And so I don't want to talk about this. And mm-hmm. so um, I, I imagine if your experience is like mine, a case for reparations is received differently uh, by white people and, and black and brown people. And, and so I would love to hear you speak, um, perhaps personally, pastorally, in, in whatever way you want to, um, about your experience in terms of how your work has been received. Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to clarify something there, Lowell, that you said that I would, I would say a little bit differently. I think that the case of the damage that was done historically is undeniable. I think that's completely undeniable. And I think, I do think that the case that um, black people and brown people and non-white people generally face enormous structural barriers to flourishing it, today is undeniable. Although, you know, there is more debate there. Um, people do want to debate that more than they do the history of theft and abuse and violence and terrorism. Um, but I am not surprised at all that Americans in the church and outside of it find reparations very difficult because Americans in the church and outside of it are hyper individualists, right? So it's actually not, you you know, when people say the case for reparations is obvious, I want to say the case for the damage done is obvious. If we deny that we're, it's willful ignorance at this stage. I think that if we deny the present suffering and experience of black and brown people, that's also willful ignorance. But the case that each one of us is liable, it, it has an obligation to participate in the solution, uh, that actually is extremely debatable because we've invested in a dehumanizing, uh, unbiblical individualism for hundreds of years in the church and outside of it, right? So I, I actually think that even though Biblically, we should be really, it should be really easy for us to see like, hey, I'm connected to other people, even people who have gone before, like that should be obvious in some ways, biblically, as an American, it's the strangest thing ever. So I actually think it's not surprising that in, when in Congress or in church or wherever else, people have a hard time making the case for reparations because in America, I don't accept, I don't expect, I don't accept responsibility for anybody living or dead, Right. So I think we need to be, I think we need to take just how foreign in some ways the Bible's account of intergenerational sin, intergenerational repair is, and say, hey, this, this is a, bri- a far bridge from where we, our cultural impulse, and take that seriously, and then say, let's look at what scripture actually says, you know? So I'm not surprised that we have a hard time. I, I do not think that reparations is obvious to Americans. I think the harm is obvious. And, and the idea that we each have a responsibility to repair it is true 
but not obvious. And so that's where a lot of the, the work comes in, you know? Um, so how do black people and white people in my, in my world, you know, and again, I want to say like, we wrote Practicing the Keynes Economy, that what came out in 2018. And then this, for me, uh, the academic study of reparations in dialogue with scripture is just a year or two old. So I'm, I'm still on the front edge of, of thinking about these things, trying to do so with a, um, a rigorously biblical perspective. So, um, and, you know, of course, COVID and everything, I haven't had as much of a chance as I'd like to talk about this with other people. So I'm really grateful for the opportunity to do so. Um, I think what's one difference. So if you think about differences, um, the reality of the theft, of the damage, of the terrorism, uh, Black people in my life feel that and know that history at such a deep level, right? That history is just so well known and it's known not least in the black church because the black church has been uh as somebody puts it i can't remember which black scholar is who's this language it has been the citadel of hope amidst the history of racism and white supremacy in this country right uh it has been the the institution that people have run into uh for survival and so um, uh, not only is the black community deeply aware of this history, not only do their parents and grandparents live the redlining and all the rest, you know, um, but, but the church has been a place where these things have been talked about. And so, um, um, I think the, the, you know, I, I got a chance to co teach a course on the gospel and ethnicity with my friend, uh, and pastor, a pastor and mentor to me. Mike Davis at a seminary here in Memphis this summer. And, you know, we spent a full half day on the history of like, where did these ideas about racism come from? And, and they are very new to white people. This history has not been told. And so on the one hand, uh, we know slavery was bad, blah, blah, but the depth, the persistence, the variety of ways um, and shapes that white supremacy has taken Historically in the present, there's just, you know, um, if, if reparations is about repair, our kind of felt sense of what needs to be repaired is very different in the black church and in the white church, in the black community, white community, from my observation. Um, uh, in terms of the case for reparations specifically, um, you know, it is interesting that, again, uh, the, the acceptability of the idea of reparations in the black community and the white community has changed over time, right? So it's becoming more acceptable in both communities. Um, I think I talked to a, uh, I have a, a mentor, a black pastor friend here in Memphis who pastors a very large church. He is, um, uh, my friend is, you know, very um, evangelical, if you like, in his perspective on scripture and the gospel and whatever else, um, but is part of a church that has played a really important role in advocating for the, for the Black community in Memphis here for a long time. And I asked him, what percentage of your congregation today um, would, you know, be down with this idea of reparations? He said, essentially 100%. He said, now, how many of them are going are to get out and advocate for it and push for it? That's different. But, um, you know, it's essentially 100%. Uh, 
Whereas when I have talked to friends and family members and, you know, had people read some of the stuff that I'm, you know, drafts and stuff I'm working on, some stuff you've read, Lowell, um, there's two kind of responses. I think from kind of white liberal progressives, it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. But what I want to know is, are we actually ready to, to invest in this thing that we're talking about, right? So there's an acceptance of the idea on paper, but I have yet to see the commitment. And I and myself am still trying to imagine and, and consider what that commitment looks like practically on the ground. Um, and then from a lot of um, uh, white Christians who I think are uh, concerned about racial injustice and, and um, concerned about white supremacy and wanna see something change. I think reparations is still uh, sort of sets off alarm bells for them because they think, well, okay, I mean, if you, if you give a bunch of money to people right away without any strings attached or whatever, isn't that going to create all sorts of problems? And they immediately jump to kind of pragmatic kind of questions. You know, like, are we just going to all get checks in the mail? Is that going to be good for people? Um, and I think there's a couple things that are important to be said there. One is um, the year of Jubilee, if, if we're going to go back to the year of Jubilee, uh, it speaks to that in two ways. One is what's redistributed, what comes back to the family at the year of Jubilee is not, um, it's not uh, income, it's, it's, it's assets, right? The farm is not income, it's, it's not cash. It's, it's an asset that will produce uh, for a lifetime. And that connects with what guys like um, uh, William Darity, a black economist at Duke, he's been working on reparations for, for decades. You know, he says uh, uh, overcoming the wealth gap should be the primary goal of a reparations program. And I think he's right about that. And I think Jubilee speaks to that. And connected to that wealth deal is that the Jubilee is also about uh, power, right? It's about each family having a stake, a social and economic stake, a place where they can live out their calling to be in the Bible's terms, uh, royal priestly family members of God, right? Kings, queens, priests, priestesses, sons and daughters of the living God, image bearers, right? Uh, little Adams and Eves over their plot, right? That's the human, uh, in the ancient Near East, the kings have all the power. And the biblical vision, everyone has a royal responsibility. They all, uh, power is uh, democratized in that sense, right? And so uh, Leviticus gives us a glimpse of one way you might actually live that out. Everyone gets their own farm, right? Everyone gets their own vine and fig tree. And, um, you know, in our example earlier, uh, I may have lost my farm to you through my own ineptitude but you die i die your jubilee comes your kids have to give my kids the farm back and it doesn't matter if they have reason to think that my kids might have inherited some of my ineptitude right they just have to do it so so there's a power dynamic at work in the year of jubilee that i think has also been a consistent part of of the case for reparations right black people have not just said you know we want some that ca- they said, we want 40 acres and a mule we want the ability uh, to um, um, control our own destiny in that sense. If you look at the Black Manifesto, the desire is not just for money, it's for a publishing arm, it's for land in the South to help farmers, it's for uh, 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 colleges and research centers, it's for uh, money to invest in Black-owned cooperative businesses that would create new avenues for wealth, right? So, so, there's, so there's a couple things that, that I would say about that in responding to this, this white claim of, well, how would this be done? And would this really be good? One thing is to say, 
white people making the decisions about money is part of the problem. So a, a, a huge part of the, of the kind of case for reparations is to say, uh, uh, if, if, if it's the sins of our forefathers and foremothers that created the problem, uh, us being in charge of the solutions is problematic, right? So there is a real need to take our hands off the wheel and say, we are not in control of the universe, right? And so any reparations program worth its salt is going to require um, white people to worry less about how everything gets done, right? So that's one thing to say, right? Um, but another thing to say, and I think this is honestly one of the biggest obstacles, um, is to say that um, the, there actually is like now decades of scholarship on how a reparations program could be run. And it is pretty smart, right? So to take just William Darity's own argument, you know, he's made a case for, yes, there would be some cash payments because that's an important part of kind of the symbolic deal of, of, of repaying. Um, but as I read him, a large part of reparation funds would go into a super fund that qualified African-Americans would be able to apply to, to use for all sorts of wealth building initiatives, buying a home, starting a business, going to school, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it's not this kind of, in other words, people have given a lot of thought to how best to design a reparations program. Um, and so before we jump on the, well, this would never work, this will create all sorts of unintended consequences, da, da, da. I don't want to deny that there aren't some legitimate thoughts there, right? Um, everybody working on reparations, I think, has recognized uh, that there are some legitimate questions about the how, right? But there have also been a lot of really strong answers provided, right? And I think that's probably true at the ecclesial level as well. Um, you know, William Darity again makes the point that if you if you if a, if a reparations program was just cash, if you just wrote checks to everybody and the amount uh, that you determined were due for reparations, given the state of ownership in America, that would basically function as a subsidy to white owners of capital, right? Because those dollars would get spent in institutions and businesses largely owned to white, by white people. So there are legitimate mechanism questions. But, you know, I think we have an obligation if we're going to raise those questions to listen to the people who've been trying to put answers to them. And there are answers. And I think that in our book, Practicing the King's Economy, if a church wanted to practice reparations, some of the stuff we talk about in there about promoting black wealth in a variety of ways um, could be uh, applied to an ecclesial reparations program, although I would want to say anything that's called reparation should involve putting decision-making power for funds in the hands of the black community. Not just because that's what the, the, the demand for reparations has been, but again, because that Jubilee idea that is, that is um, uh, zero interest loans are a good idea, right? Deuteronomy 15. Uh, a social food bank for orphans, immigrants, widows, that's a good idea. Deuteronomy 14, 28 to 29. A, a limit to debt bondage is a good idea. Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 18. But eventually, at least once every 50 years, every family has to have renewed access to the factors of production, to the stuff that makes stuff, to the land that their family has agency and power over in the economy, right? That, and that's just 
that's just a part of the biblical vision, right? Now we have to figure out how to move from here to there, lots to be said, but hopefully I've given enough biblical impetus to say it's worth seriously engaging. Uh, well, I think we have to seriously engage with the history of injustice against black people, the present of injustice against black people. I think that's required by all sorts of, for all sorts of reasons, but hopefully I've given enough biblical impetus to say, we should also explore this idea of reparations, you know, uh, trying to repair the damage cross-generationally through significant economic action put under the authority of Black people, um, whether that's through the church or through society. Hopefully, I've given enough argument to say we should take those ideas seriously and come at them with biblical eyes, eyes at least shaped by the jubilary vision of Leviticus 25, right? So that's a long answer to a short question. Um, I, in my world, I think people are hopeful about the idea that something could be done. I think people know in new ways that racism, white supremacy is a deep wound, right? And we want, I think most people in my world want to see something done. Um, and so, and, and maybe there's a growing willingness to do something about it. Um, and I think uh, that's where some of this year of Jubilee and some of the case for reparations can maybe spur us to more productive creative action. Mm. Mm. Yes and amen. Um, we, we should probably wrap it up because I imagine you have other things to do today. Uh, Darity, uh, from here to equality, that's what yes. you're talking about, right? Yeah, it, 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 uh, which, he, which he co-authored, but, but he's been publishing in economics journals largely on reparations for I think decades but certainly yeah. for years but from here to equality would be a good way for folks to access him uh, if they don't want to read an economics journal yeah <laughs> and then I know yeah the folks yeah. uh the ladies at a truce table yes reviewed him as well yes. so if that, you want like four, five minutes of, what's that that's how I ran into him yeah so that that would be another easy way to, yeah. to access his stuff yeah, absolutely. And definitely where I, I don't I don't know if if Darity is a believer or not, but he certainly puts to rest this idea that um, a case for reparations for descendants of slaves is is unthoughtful or, or just obviously wouldn't work or that. I mean, he gives enormous amounts of data and also looks at I know you guys have talked about this. The fact that, you know, reparations programs of various sorts have been done in this country and elsewhere now. There may be differences between those programs and the program that's being under consideration, but all of that makes this uh, I, these ideas that, that we should treat as plausible, legitimate questions, you know. Um, and really, you know, I mean, however many years ago when I read Tani C. Coates' The Case for Reparations and, and the argument that he makes, he, I mean, he has this, this line where he says, basically, like, maybe it's impossible to do but we've got to do the work of having the conversation, right? Now, I don't think it's impossible to do, and I don't think he does either. But I do think that as Christians, uh, we have a lot more energy that we can spend to understanding the claim that's being made and to thinking deeply about our sacred text and how our sacred text might intersect with the claims that are being made before we can write this stuff off. So for people who are skeptical, I just want to say, like, I just think there's a lot I, I'd, um, what is it? What, what's the song by, um, you may be right. I may be crazy. Maybe, but I don't think we've spent enough time <laughs> deciding 
bet this is crazy. I think there's a lot of work to be done here and we ought to get after it because uh, the good news is that Jesus is inviting us into his kingdom and his kingdom is characterized by justice and characterized by joy. And that's for Christians. That's what this is about. Right. And um, I think uh, there's an enormous uh, missional in the deepest sense of the word to say, this is a huge thing in our society. This, this debate about reparations. What would it mean to walk with Jesus and engage these ideas? To say, what does the church have to offer to this uh, deep, deep, deep conversation that's happening in our society? What if scripture had some things to offer for how we thought about that? Good news, it does. Yeah, well, Coates opens his case for reparations with a quote from, I think it's Deuteronomy. It's it's from the Torah anyway. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Well, I don't know a better way to end than with you singing. Uh, so <laughs> Billy I think, Joel. I think that's Billy Joel. <laughs> uh, so we'll, we'll we'll kill it there. Uh, Michael, thank you uh, so much for spending time with me today. I'm looking forward to uh, sharing your voice uh, with my friends here in Northwest Arkansas. Um, so unless you got anything else, um, we'll we'll end it there. Yeah, and I yeah, just that uh, this is a as I say, this is a conversation for me too, and I'm I'm happy to keep hearing from folks and and growing because i uh, yeah all right well thank you brother we'll see you soon yep all right so we wanted to spend a few minutes discussing what we heard from michael and what we hope for northwest arkansas generally and the church in northwest arkansas specifically um dustin i think i went first last month um, do you want to go first and share what you heard? Yeah, turnsies. Yeah, I can go first. No okay. problem. Uh, I, I really, I thoroughly enjoyed the interview. Uh, just to start, uh, I love the topic of Jubilee um, because I think it is one of these concepts that is central to the Old Testament narrative that doesn't get talked about nearly enough. And so uh, even in his mentioning of uh, the marriage between uh, Jubilee and the Day of Atonement is one of those ideas that people don't really know about in Scripture, that those are two married ideas, the Day of Atonement and the Year of Jubilee. Jubilee law would happen on that. And so, but I, before I get there, I wanted to talk about uh, one thought that he had uh, early on in the interview uh, where he was um, mentioning uh, the the historical legacy of white supremacy in America. And he's talking about, you know, learning about uh, redlining and uh, the policies and things that have, that have contributed to the wealth gap and all these kinds of things mm-hmm. um, in American history. And I mean, it's just it was again another one of those reminders, and, you, and, and I and they they happen, you know, often. But that we weren't we're not just dealing with an issue of, you know, white supremacy in regards of white people having a sense of, uh, of superiority to black people in a theoretical sense, right? But mm-hmm. w- what has really been experienced is white supremacist um, terrorism 
in the history of this nation. Yes. Right? When he tells a story about the black store owners and um, the who are running a successful business and that being a threat to a neighboring white store owner and out of jealousy that they arrest and end up lynching the owners of that store. Those are instances of not white supremacy, but racial terrorism. And we, we oftentimes, again, I've said this in previous episodes, want to stop the conversation at slavery. But what happens after slavery is as egregious to what happens during slavery with over a hundred years of racialized terrorism of black people in this country and uh, the stealing of life, the stealing of land, the threat of black success being uh, squashed at every opportunity to do so to where uh, black people for the most part are just wanting to be left alone and have the opportunity to just live in peace. Like I listen, I remember listening to stories of my grandfather who is from Arkansas, who was a sharecropper in in the state of Arkansas that I, I currently live in. And he would talk about race and a sense of they just tried to stay away from white people so that they could have peace. Right? They didn't want to engage because engaging with white people was a dangerous thing to do, to have relationships across that, that line. And so black people were like, hey, we just want to live in peace. <laughs> right? To where my family is not being threatened. Right? For uh, over things that are of in reality of real no real uh, meaning. All right, do I look at you in the eye? <laughs> All right, do I talk to you in a in a tone that you don't appreciate? Am I uh, having a sense of self confidence in your presence? And all those kinds of things, which are historically. Uh, reason enough for white people to commit acts of violence against black people. And a lot of what you know was being communicated early on reminded me of that. Like this this history of of racialized terrorism that has existed in the history of our country. And I think that that has to be reckoned with. And it is a history that there is tons of evidence for if people will be willing to see. And we're not just talking about the economics of this issue, but the overall trauma that has been called, right? First in stripping people away from their native land and stripping their language and their history and their culture from them and enslaving them, right? In perpetuity, right? And then when they finally become free, partially, right, due to their own fighting for their own freedom in the Civil War, right, becoming uh, objects of racialized terror, 
right, for generations after that. And that every attempt of Black people to try to get a leg up, right, to try to get ahead, right, was uh, systematically um, deconstructed. Um, and that even the, the attempts to build wealth by Black people was, you know, a lot of those opportunities were taken. And you talk about redistribu redistribution of wealth, right? the redistribution of Black wealth into the hands of white people historically and the stealing of their land, the stealing of their resources and, and all these types of things, like is, there's a big history that they need to be reckoned with. And so he just reminded me of that. And so when we think about the history of those things, it's just a lot that, um, you know, I don't think we sit down and ponder enough. And now we even live in a, in, in a cultural moment where we can't talk about the history of those things. And I know what people don't want to talk about the history of those things because those histories are very painful to hear, right? They're, they're incredibly painful for the people who are the ancestors of those who are the victims of those actions to hear, right? And they're also painful for the people uh, who are the ancestors of those who, who were um, the perpetrators of those actions. And so it, it requires us to actually sit in that, the uncomfortableness of that. Like whenever I do trainings on race, I have you have to go through and walk through the uh, the history of the evil acts that were done. And they are overwhelming to hear because that is how deep Right, the the atrocities are, and but you have to deal with it because if you don't, you're going to be thinking that you know what you know they try to paint in Florida sometimes that you know black people were just slaves and you know and there's a lot of things that happened in that institution that benefited them and mm -hmm. and that is asinine and we we have to move into a place to where we could talk about what really happened because what what it what what exists is built on the historical legacy of what has happened and we have to talk about that and so that is the catalyst of us understanding the apologetic reparations and then again secondly i think that 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 hope i mean not the hope but the what i hear is again that that marriage of of uh, Jubilee and a Day of Atonement. Uh, Lo, I, 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 we struggle in our Western context to understand that Christianity is so much about what we have been given mm. that we do not deserve. In the life of the believer is to live in light of that reality that I have been given far much more than I deserve. And so one who has been given much gives much. Mm -hmm. And, but we, we like the, uh, the living with the ability to have entitlement 
in our lives, that I deserve this, I deserve that. And to kind of have these kind of transactional relationships. But an honest reading of the scripture deconstructs that notion for us. That no, you, you don't deserve anything. But you have been given everything in Jesus. Mm-hmm. So how does a person who has been given everything that they do not deserve live? Right? That they live open-handed. Mm-hmm. They're not walking around about what I deserve, what I worked hard for, all these kinds of things. But they give freely because they understand their real position. And I think one of the major, con- you know, issues that are that that's confused in our modern context is that we look at our church and we when and I guarantee you, I think if you would talk about the issue of salvation in a general sense, right? You have a lot of people who you ask them why they sh- you know should go to heaven. And they will, you know, start talking about things that they have done or haven't done, right? And it would it would very little rest on what has been done for them in spite of them. And so when people have that same kind of uh, uh, theological framework for their, about what salvation is, of course, they carry that into their interpersonal social. Um, uh relationships of I have what I have because of what I've done. You have what you have because of what you've done, you've done, right? Which is how we arrive at a place to where we literally have a large majority of people who engage with the issue of poverty as a moral issue. And by a moral issue is a moral issue of the person who is in poverty. It is their moral failure, right, that has caused them to be in poverty, right, versus our sales, our society is being complicit in structuring society in a way that has caused people to be in in the condition that they're in, right? And even things that we have that are such an integral part of our world now, where we talk about, you know, interest, <laughs> right? And debt and all these kinds of things that if you read the scripture, the scripture is wholly against the idea of indebtedness and usury. Mm-hmm. Right? You read the Old Testament scriptures and how often the scriptures are saying, do not charge interest, right? Cancel debts. But we have we really have built an entire economy around those two ideas, mm-hmm. usury and debt. To to what has happened, right? A a a, a, a usury and debt driven economy is naturally going to do major harm to the poor, mm-hmm. because once you get behind, you can never get ahead again. Same kind of system that is used in sharecropping and all that kind of stuff. Let me get you in debt and loaning you the the tools and the means and to actually farm, so that and you know you'll never be able to get out from under this this debt. You'll never be able to become independent on yourself. It's that same kind of idea, those same kind of concepts. And we have built what we see on those kinds of ideas, 
And so when we come to the idea of reparations and we're talking about the, the, the systems that we have put into place that have caused this widespread harm, right? Even in light of racialized terrorism, but also um, systems that have been explicitly racist and marginalizing of black people, you, you have to atone for those things, right? And you have to make those things right. And I think that's very, very important in the overall conversation here. And so, mm -hmm. mm. Well, I appreciate those comments, Dustin. Um, one of my favorite things about doing this podcast with you is that um, you know, we can look at the same thing and see um, some things that are the same, but other things that are different. Your perspective, your your uh, comments on Michael's interview um, in some ways are different, you know, than, than mine because you see it from a different place, um, but in other ways are the, are the same. Um, and so I'd love to, to comment on your comments. And then I had some remarks that I prepared as I reflected on Michael's interview, but um, you know, you mentioned Ida B. Wells, who's become a hero of mine. Um, and in a book that she wrote, you know, she was talking about white Christians and she said, uh, white Christians are more concerned about saving the souls of white people from hellfire than with saving the bodies of black people from fires kindled by white Christians. That was, you know, a line of hers in her anti-lynching crusade. Um, and, you know, Memphis is not not far from here. In fact, I'm going there next week to see family. Um, so I, I spend time in Memphis and, you know, I've read about um, what Michael described, the, the injustices there. Um, and, and so it's a good reminder for me, um, you know, what Michael described happened uh, in a time and place not far from here and now. You know, I also read a book recently by Daisy Bates um, about Little Rock um, and the Little Rock Nine and um, desegregation, you know, and I'm from Little Rock and, and that is not far from from here and now either. And um, I, I think what I'm trying to say, Dustin, is I agree with you that um, we, we don't like to think about um, the, the history of racial injustice in our country and in our community, which is really, which is really a story of, of terrorism. Um, acts of tremendous um, wicked violence, often perpetrated by white Christians. Um, just briefly in this book that I read um, by Daisy Bates uh, about, um, you know, the Little Rock Nine, there, there was a, a a point in time, so that happened in, in the 1950s, um, and and white people were incredibly violent, um, violently opposed to to integration. Um, we know that story, but there there was a moment in the book where um, you, you know there was a parent of, of of children who were integrating who were reflecting on the lynching of John Carter in the 1920s, and this is a, a story that. Um, I, I know in part because our mutual friend Kwame Abdul Bay told it to me. Um, but John Carter was a black man who was lynched in Little Rock in the 1920s. <clears throat> and Dustin, they 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 hung him and then they dragged his body behind a car through town. And then they went to the black part of Little Rock, took the pews out of the church, and built a bonfire. 
um, on which they burned the body of this man. Now, the, the point is that happened in the 1920s, which, which is 100 years ago. Um, but in, in the, the 50s, which, you know, is, is not that far from, from now, and they're, they're members of the Little Rock Nine are still alive, there was living memory of this lynching in the 20s. And so I, I think I'm, I'm trying to, to agree with you, Dustin, that this, this history of, of domestic terrorism um, is not an ancient history. It's, it's very close to here and now. You talked about your grandfather who, who fled. You didn't use those words, but Arkansas as a part of the Great Migration, which was in response to terrorism in the South. Um, your grandfather and many like him, um, you, you know, went went north to to get away from that violence here. Um, and and when we when we think about the present, um, in relation to that past, I I think it has to change what we do here and now. Um, and I think a lot of the racial reconciliation movement. Um, that says, you know, really the solution to, to the problem is us being friends is an ahistorical solution. It doesn't consider the past um, because it, it doesn't, it's not consistent. Um, so you, you want me to move on to the remarks that I prepared or do you have other things to say about that? No, I think you're spot on with that. When I hear conversations around reparation and they oftentimes deal with the economic reality but if you know about um, litigation in this country a, a great deal of compensation needs to be made for overall pain and suffering and that is a huge part of this. I don't know if you ever read um, Dr. Joy DeGruz, um post-traumatic slave syndrome book. Mm -hmm. She does wonderful work in talking about the intergenerational traumas from slavery and racialized trauma after slavery that is that affects black people in perpetuity that kind of trauma that really gets into your dna and it is incredibly difficult to get out of your dna because you have been you're dealing with generations on generations on generations of, of trauma that becomes a part of your being as a person, All right? We don't think about the depths of that pain that has been inflicted in that way. Uh, living your life in complete trauma and then trying to become whole generations after that when in light of that legacy that's an incredible incredibly difficult thing to do and i think it's something that we don't give enough conversation to even in light of this because it's so hard which i think well, i often say lament is such a huge part of this process mm -hmm. because you have to deal with the weightiness of the grievance that is required 
from any of us who are human beings to sit in the weightiness of what has been done. Right? You read books like Medical Apartheid. You read these books that talk about that trauma. And, you know, even read other books that are more modern books, like The Body Keeps the School, right? That talks about in broad how trauma is absorbed into our bodies and it affects our health, it affects our mental well-being, it affects our ability to build relationships, our abilities to thrive and have executive functioning, all these kinds of things, right? And we talk about, if we talk about, right, generations of compiled trauma that are that is in that is um through experience and what is passed down like that is that's a lot to deal with and i think it takes us actually being able to listen to those stories so much of healing is actually being able to listen to stories about what has been done what about what has happened Right, even in the process of reparations, like there's a big need for um, um, economic restitution. Mm -hmm. But there's also the need to take the stories out of the social vault that they have been forced into to allow people to say what has happened and what has been done to them, right, so that they can heal from those wounds and not have continued trauma right perpetuated on them from being or having to suppress and repress all of that um inside of them you know that that's very important yeah i agree i agree taking on your talking time today lol no that's good man you, you got good things to say and we have we have time talk as long as we want to uh i don't know if everybody will listen but hopefully hopefully they will uh so as i was reflecting on the interview dustin um i heard michael make three main points that i wanted to share um so the first point is that reparations is part of doing biblical justice so mm -hmm. in his most recent book which i alluded to in the interview but he hadn't published it yet it just came out in 2023, but that book is called Just Discipleship, Biblical Justice in an Unjust World. So in that book, Michael wrote a chapter called A Jubilee Case for Ecclesial Reparations, in which he made a case for reparation based on his study of the Bible generally and of Leviticus 25 specifically. So the first point that I heard is, hey, reparations is part of biblical justice. Uh, the second point is that Doing justice is part of being disciples. The, the title of the book is just discipleship. So people like me, uh, white Christians, in, in my experience, we tend to believe that we can either be disciples or do justice. But Michael is saying, no, that's not true. If we want to be disciples, then we need to do justice because Jesus loves justice. So that's the second point. Doing justice is part of being disciples. And then the third point uh, is that when Jesus calls us to be disciples, which we've established includes doing justice and reparations, he's calling us to a jubilant life, a joyful life. And so 
we we've talked a lot and we tend to believe that that reparations is about lamenting and michael is saying yes that's true reparations is about lamenting but it's also about rejoicing so we we lament that we have done injustice but we rejoice that we get to do justice with jesus and so i, I think this is really important because for me um well, it's just, it, it's helpful for me, this, this, this line of thinking um, that, that makes reparations something that I think for, for many of us, white Christians, white evangelicals, uh, feels very, very threatening um, to say, no, based, based on the Bible, th this is actually an opportunity for us um and, and so my, you 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 shared your hopes and, and i want to hear if you have more but but my hope justin is really that white christians practice reparations because we want to do justice because we want to be disciples of jesus who loves justice in, in other words i hope that we see practicing reparations which includes both lamenting and rejoicing not as a threat but as an opportunity to, to do justice and be disciples of Jesus. Do you have any other hopes or comments, Dustin? Yeah, you, what you just communicated was what I was um, gonna communicate as my hope as well. Okay. Um, I think we don't really understand how healing it is for us to live outside of ourselves. Mm. There's a TED talk that I listened to some time ago that talked about um, uh, what is it that really contributes to happiness? And what is it that actually improves the quality of life long-term? And the number one thing it was not, and the number one thing was not success, it was not wealth, it was not uh, um, marriage and kids. It was living a life that was outside of you, that was committed to service. And I think in connection with this, in what uh, Dr. Rhodes was communicating, is one, that God is holy, and he's consecrated, he's set apart, and his way of doing things is different, but better. And a part of what God invites us into is the process of becoming holy like God and living a way that God has prescribed for us that is better than the way of life that we have set up for ourselves to where we um, value power and material things and position and all these other concepts over people, over doing good, especially when it comes at a harm to us or at a loss for ourselves. And the beauty of that, again, is what he, he marries 
Jubilee, and he marries the Day of Atonement, that we who have been given a lot, right, we have the gift to give a lot as well, right? And we, we see that, right? That's what we see when we look at Zacchaeus, right? We don't know what happened in that conversation with Zacchaeus and Jesus. We don't know what Jesus said to him, but we know that Zacchaeus was deeply moved by that. And as a response to the grace that he had experienced in the hospitality of Jesus, what is Zacchaeus's response? What is it but to give away that which he was previously hoarding for himself? Right, it becomes of no value to him, no consequence to lose. And he gives away, right? First, primarily to those whom he had done harm to, right? But generally, in the sense that this becomes meaningless to me in comparison to what I had just experienced in the hospitality of Jesus, right? Which is the first indicator for us is that man, maybe we have a church it's a strong maybe <laughs> that doesn't know Jesus very well mm. that hasn't experienced his hospitality that likes to talk about his grace but hasn't truly experienced it tasted it which is why there is the struggle to live like Jesus, to live like God, to be holy like him, and to be willing to relinquish the things that we hold on to because they give us control, they give us power, they give us a sense of being better than the gift, the joy that it is to make things right. Right, the only thing that heals trauma is to have positive experience that replaces experiences of harm. Right? What un what undoes the harm that we have experienced, but to engage in new, healthy, thriving relationship that reverses that harm. That's one of the beauties of life like why long extended hugs are so good for the body that after so many seconds of hugging the person, your body begins to heal itself in ways that it doesn't uh, do by itself. There's something about that shared energy of bodies touching and care, right? Restores. You ever had a good hug, Lowell? And he was like, man, that felt good, <laughs> right? That's because that in, in, in that, your body was healing itself. Mm -hmm. And there's something about Jubilee in my eyes that is like that embrace, that hug. Especially with the person whom you've been at a rift with. Right, when you've had a person who you, you've seen and that 
person has indicated strife and conflict in you and you pursue the process of healing, of restoration, and you embrace, right? And where you had previously thought there would be violence and harm, there becomes compassion and empathy and that embrace feels good. And I say that because I, I, we live in a church that, that obviously desperately needs a hug from Jesus. Mm. Mm. So that they can actually embrace his way of doing things with joy and gladness. What, what Jesus does not want to do, right, is to take people's things against their will. Right, this is why oftentimes in Old Testament, God will actually talk about them not, you know, being faithful to Jubilee or being, you know, up, you know, uh, being generous and all that. But God doesn't want to force you to be generous. Right? <laughs> Without compulsion. Right? He wants you to be touched and embraced in after you ex experience his goodness, you respond in kind, which is what Jubilee is about, which is why you experience the day of atonement first, right? You experience all of your guilt, your shame, <laughs> right? Your wrong, your sin being put on something else and you being forgiven so that you can feel the gift of that weightlessness. Right. So that, man, I love how that feels. Let me go and give that to someone else. Mm -hmm. Let me pass that on. And so, you know, my hope for the church, my hope is that that would be experienced. Because really, when I see people fighting, against reparations and racial justice. What I really see is people who are, by way of their actions, by way of their posturing, by way of the rhetoric that they are using, are communicating that they have not yet been in relationship with Jesus and so cannot respond and behave like him. And so that's my hope is that people who claim to be Christians would actually come to know Jesus so that they can actually live in the celebratory reality of what Jubilee can be. Because if it does happen, how much more beautiful would it be if, if, that, if that transaction of restitution, of repair happens from joyful, exuberant, cheerful people whom have experienced the love of Jesus and want to be extensions of the grace that they have received. How much more beautiful would that be? versus a simple transaction of resources from uh, a party that has done harm 
right, to the party that was harmed, right? That would do some good, but it would not be beautiful in a way in which that would be beautiful. Mm -hmm. That'll preach, Dustin. That'll preach. That's that's some good news. Uh, I think a good place to stop for this month. So that's all for today's episode. Uh, y'all come back for an interview with Kimini Uwan next month. And go to our website, reparationsnownwa.com, to get more information about the Zacchaeus Foundation, the All Word Podcast, and the All Word Events. Thanks.